and welcome to the Can Do MS podcast. My name is Rachel Lottie, and I'm the program's coordinator for Can Do Multiple Sclerosis. We're excited for today's podcast, which is the final episode in our three-part Embracing Carer series, focusing on those supporting a loved one with MS. Today, we have three guests joining us, psychologist Megan Beyer and couple Mark and Lynn Ferrat. Mark and Lynn are going to discuss how their relationship was impacted by Mark's MS diagnosis and how it affected their future planning. They'll also share some real life stories about how they adjusted for a future with MS and where they turned to for support. Once again, I'd like to introduce Megan Beyer to kick off our discussion. Thanks, Rachel. I've really enjoyed being a part of this podcast series specifically for support partners. I've also really enjoyed hearing stories that may help others in similar situations. As Rachel said, today's discussion is going to focus on how MS can impact future planning. Uh, Research, as well as I think experience and intuition tells us that finances are one of the biggest areas of conflict among couples. MS brings with it unexpected medical costs that could take a couple by surprise in the short and long term. In addition to finances, it's helpful to talk to family and support networks about maximizing health insurance options, thinking about potential changes in employment, planning for children, making sure family members understand wishes about your current and future medical care. And I think by thinking ahead, persons with MS and their support partners can begin to plan for unforeseen circumstances, as well as things that they want for the future, goals, hopes, and dreams. So to read more about future planning, or if you have uh, additional questions about financial planning, there's some really great resources on the National MS Society website, uh, two brochures specifically called Talking About Life Planning and Financial Planning for a Life with MS. Uh, To give a more personal experience and some information about their experiences in planning, we have Lynn and Mark with us to talk about how MS has impacted them. Welcome, Lynn and Mark. Thank you. Thank you Megan. Thanks, Megan. So first, I'm going to ask you both where you met. And I'd also like to hear a little bit about where you both are from. And let's start with Lynn, since um, we're focusing on support partners. Okay, so I immigrated from England. I was born in Oxford and raised in London. And when I was 11 years old, my dad died and my mom's family was in Ohio. So my sister, my mom, and I immigrated to Ohio, and I spent about 10 years there, including going to nursing school. And as soon as I graduated, I packed up the car and moved to California. So I've been out here ever since and um, had a really great career as a nurse for about 50 years. And I uh, was born in North Carolina. Uh, My dad was a career Army officer. We moved about every three years, and that was the last time we had moved anywhere. My dad was 40 at that point, and uh, he wanted to retire and decided he was going to move the entire family, all eight of us, nine, including my mom, to California from North Carolina. And he was going to open a business. It didn't work out. That was in 1968. And so I've been in California since then. And I've been here since 67. Long time. So how did you both meet? We were both divorced and working at a local hospital, and one of our friends put together a river rafting trip. And we knew each other peripherally at work. Uh, We say hello, but that was about it. And when we went on the river rafting trip, we just 
sat around a campfire and started talking and he was really funny and just a really nice guy. And we ended up spending a lot of time together over that three-day rafting trip and dancing together like mad in one of the saloons up in Groveland right before you get to Yosemite. And um, just decided after that to continue the relationship. So one of the things that attracted me to Mark is we were on a tributary off the Tuolumne River up um, by Yosemite. And we, I was the only woman that climbed up onto the 40 foot cliff and jumped into the water. The men did it, but none of the other women did. And then on the way out, I started walking down the hill. And this is before I really got to know Mark. And he was on the other side of the river. And I looked at him and he looked at me and we started racing down the river back to the main area. And I thought, this guy's not going to beat me. And I was running down the rocks. And when we got right to the bottom, he crossed in front of me and he won. And I told him the story about when my kids were little, there was a record called Free to Be You and Me by Marlo Thomas. And one of the stories on the record was about this princess, Atalanta. And her father said she, he would give her hand in marriage to any man that could beat her in a race because she was a really fast runner. Eventually, the prince that won her hand said to her after he won, well, you don't have to marry me. It was just really fun to race and to beat you. And that story always reminded me of Mark and I racing down the riverbank. And I told him that story at the time. We had a good laugh over that. <laughs> Mark, what was your reaction to her story? Oh, no, it was absolutely wonderful because uh, that really began the competitive spirit, if you want to call it that, that exists in our relationship today. Uh, <laughs> we we were competing then running down the river, and we compete in a lot of different ways today. And most of it is really, really good. Sometimes it involves a little bit of conflict, but <laughs> I love that competitive nature. I think it's wonderful in relationships to have somebody you can compete with compete with and i think i understand that you also have an interesting story about your marriage my mom turned 80 and my stepfather was going to take the whole family on a cruise and mark got on his hands and knees in his tuxedo on the cruise and asked my mom if he could marry me which was very touching my mother was absolutely thrilled that he asked her first but prior to that, we had got some rings, um, and we decided that if we could find someone on the ship to marry us, we would. Well, we did. We found a priest, and we said, you know, would you perform a non-denominational marriage? And he said, yes, he would. So this old retired priest did it. And we got married on the cruise ship. But he said to us, you know, this is not legal because you don't have a license. So we just kind of lived in harmony for years and years and said, why do we need a license? We don't need the blessing of the state of California to be married. We already got married on the boat with our family present. But then on Mark's um, 50th birthday, I had a big birthday party for him and we surprised everyone by getting married legally. And my son got ordained on the internet as a minister and he performed the wedding and everyone there was surprised. We didn't tell anybody. Wow, that's so fun. So tell me a little bit about when and how MS entered your lives. It, it was actually kind of complicated. And I think this happens to a lot of people with MS is that the picture was really muddy for years about what was happening to me. I noticed I started tripping and so I was having trouble walking um, and it was mostly with lifting my right leg up. And I, I even to the point where I had a, a lumbar laminectomy because it was thought that uh, a trapped nerve root was causing this foot drop on the right. That ultimately didn't harm me, but it didn't help me either. And just, and my MS symptoms continuously worsened. 
And finally, I was seeing a, a local health system called Kaiser. And in the Kaiser system, I'd seen a couple of neurologists. And finally, one of them did agree that I had MS. And well, you kind of diagnosed yourself. He didn't I write did. that down on your chart. He wrote demyelinating disease. <laughs> right. No, it was very true. And I, I confronted him as I have primary progressive MS. And he says, yeah, I think you're right. So that was kind of a, a shocker. At that time, I was working um, as a nurse practitioner in an emergency department in a rural hospital. And that was devastating to me because I pretty much had already figured it out that I had MS but I was still walking at that point. I was starting to use a cane because it was getting a little bit more difficult. Um, and it, I have progressed um, since then. That was in 2010. But not only that, you were working in the emergency room and he had to quit his job because of extreme fatigue, mostly, and a few other issues, bladder issues, that sort of thing at work. And it got to the point where he had to resign eventually. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like this was a big wrench in the vision that maybe both of you had for the future. Um, so what was the vision that you all had before MS entered the picture? And, and how did that vision change after Mark was diagnosed? Before he was diagnosed, we had not really talked about retirement all that much because he was only 57 at that time. And we lived in the mountains on five acres and we chopped all our own wood and heated our house for the winter. And we skied a lot. One of the reasons we moved to our vacation home up in the mountains is because we both love skiing so much. And Mark is a really hard skier. I'm more of an intermediate, but he was skiing anything. So we wanted to do that. And our vision was we bought some land in Mexico. We were going to build a house there. We actually employed an architect to design the home with every window facing the ocean. And we were going to have a six-month summer house and a six-month winter house. That was our vision for the future. And then two things happened. We got a grandson. My uh, son had a son. And Mark got MS. And then we realized we, that dream was not going to be fulfilled. So first we sold the land in Mexico. And we were still planning on staying in the mountains. And then one day Mark said to me, you know, I think we need to move back down to the Bay Area. San Francisco Bay Area, where we live now, because of medical, and I can't go up the steps as easily as I could. I can't do the wood anymore, and it's becoming more and more difficult. This was extremely disrupting to him. I love cities, so I was very excited to go home. And he actually said, you're probably glad I got out of mess because you get to move back to the Bay Area. And I said, no price is worth that, nothing. But we ended up coming back down here. That was my vision for the future, which has totally changed. And, what, and yours was probably about the same, don't you think? Yeah, well, I think that uh, just to follow up on that, we've, we're both really active outdoor people, uh, love to uh, hike, uh, love to, we used to, to ride our bikes. We did since, uh, several century rides and I was riding my bike uh, when I was down, living down here in the Bay Area, I was working at the VA at the time. I was riding about 100 miles a week. And we were just actively hiking everywhere. And of course, any of the winter activities, because our house in the mountains was at snow level. And so we got snow every winter. So we would go snowshoeing and uh, we'd go uh, cross-country skiing a couple of times, but mostly downhill skiing. Uh, there was kayaking. And so avid outdoor people, I that was going to be my Elysian. That was going to be a place that 
was just going to be, I was going to retire in among the trees and the Sierras in the winter, just phenomenal. And so it became uh, a lot more problematic in just being able to do any of those activities and access to medical care uh, was very problematic because of where we were located. So my vision of the future was always going to be, um, I was going to ski until I could just drop down until nothing else, nothing else worked and that we could hike and we could kayak uh, and we, travel. we could be in the mountains and travel. Uh, and that changed significantly with my diagnosis. Right. What were some of the biggest fears that you had, both of you, after the diagnosis? Mine was that I he would be depressed. And uh, the other part for me was, what's going to happen to the plans? I want to travel the world. When you get retired and you have a little bit of money, you want to go see all these different countries. You want to travel, travel, travel. How is that going to impact our life? And... I, we love to dance. Who is going to be my dance partner? <laughs> I couldn't have anyone to dance with anymore. And I still miss that part. And we sort of rearranged the rest. But um, those were my fears. What about yours? For me, the, the biggest fear is the unknowing. It's like, what's my progress going to be? What's next year going to be like? Um, when I announced a couple of years ago that this is in November, December, that next year would be the year of the wheelchair because I had some sense of my progress at that point. But when I first was diagnosed, I didn't know what my future was holding. I could still walk, but I knew it was difficult because I was having, you know, I was having oh. foot drop on the right. So it's that the unknowing is the, the, is the biggest challenge and the fear of what's going to happen next. Yeah, I think also, too, that, you know, I know that a lot of people have financial difficulties and we're OK right now. But one of the things I did learn is one of my worries was if Mark needed full time care at some point, how are we going to pay for it? The money that we have would run out within five to 10 years if we were paying $10,000 a month for round the clock care. And we did a class uh, with a psychologist with all, my, all MS patients. And she said to me something that never occurred. She said, and I am a very black and white person. There's no gray in the middle. She said, well, why are you worrying about 24 hours, seven you know, days a week care? Maybe you'll only need an hour in the morning and an hour at night. And I thought, oh, my gosh, she's right. <laughs> it never occurred to me. So now I just think one day at a time. We'll deal with that when it happens. Absolutely. So, you know, I think that a lot of people have the experience that you had, which is um, there's so many pieces to think through and so many things that you might not be aware of. Um, it sounds like you took um, some initiative to, to start looking into how to plan for the future. What did you both do to start thinking about planning for the future? And where did you turn to for guidance in addition to this class that you mentioned? Mark belongs to a men's support group down here, which has been really helpful for him to just be with men with MS that discuss all of the different aspects of their life, sexuality, bladder, bowel control, all of that. There's no secrets between them. And I think that's been really, really a great resource for him. I think from me looking at Mark, too, he yeah, he gets down. He gets depressed sometimes when he's down. I'm up when I'm down. He's up. I think that that's a good balance. I also think that for him, it was a question of reinventing himself. Who am I going to be now? How am I going to develop my life so it's still fulfilling? So he's done a couple of things. He's really gotten into photography big time. 
And then he has a foster kid. He's a CASA, court-appointed special advocate. And he sees a foster child once a week, which has made a huge difference in both of their lives, both him and the boy. So those have really helped him refocus, I think, on living with this disease and not your life's not over. There's still plenty to do and plenty of other things to be interested in. It's just that you're in a wheelchair now and you're not doing it from a standing position. And as I told him one time, I'd way rather have him in a wheelchair than a guy that's walking with two legs that's not you. You know, to me, the disease has not really impacted me that much because he's still the same person. He's just sitting down instead of standing up. And for me, I think, you know, as far as resources initially, I cannot say enough about Can Do MS. Uh, the two programs, the, the two day were in Oakland, uh, was really, it's like it was eye opening and especially the four day program in Denver. Uh, unbelievable number of resources uh -huh. that are available and the, the really positive feedback that's given to each of the participants went cause it's right. I talked to you earlier that the, the fear of the unknown um, is huge. But when you can get feedback directly by working with an occupational therapist or a physical therapist or a neurologist or a psychologist directly that, yeah, you know something, you're doing it right. You're doing a good thing. Um, or these are better ways that you can improve your life. Those those resources were incredible. And also, I, I, I work with the National Multiple Sclerosis Society and the Walk MS uh, that we do every year, and a lot of the resources that they've made available. Um, so you have to reach out, right? And you can't just sit back and say, "Oh, woe is me." You need to reach out. You need to find your resources. Um, you need to rewrite your book. Essentially, what Lynn already said. Wonderful. So it sounds like you both have done a lot to kind of think ahead and reach out for your resources. But what setbacks have you experienced throughout this process in planning and how did you move past them? I think with each stage of loss of mobility, there are new things to think about each time. For example, I don't go anywhere with Mark anymore without planning ahead. Does a restaurant call them, ask them if they have steps? For example, he can't get in with his wheelchair if there are steps. We went to New Zealand in February, planning for the airplane, an extra suitcase filled with all his supplies. He can't get out of bed without a bed rail. So we have a portable bed rail that we have to take apart and pack and take with us. Uh, sometimes toilet risers, making sure a handicapped room is truly handicapped. We've been in situations where they're advertised to be handicapped and we get there and he can't use the bathroom. So there's all kinds of things that come up on a daily basis as the disease progresses that you have to think about. One of my favorites is we live in a community where there's lots and lots of condos with stairs and people, we had, we don't have stairs, but somebody said, well, Mark can come over for dinner because we've got a chairlift. And I said, well, what does he do when he gets to the top of the stairs? He has a 250 pound wheelchair at the bottom of the stairs. Who's going to get it up the stairs? And they look at me like, oh, so they bring us dinner over here. He can't go to their house. And so there's little things that occur all the time. I would say that the biggest challenges are finding the kinds of equipment that we need to make his life more comfortable. Finding the right clothing to wear in a wheelchair. Somebody needs to design a whole line of clothing for wheelchairs. He can't wear a sports jacket. The jacket gets all caught up in the wheelchair. 
we're going to a black tie event. What are, what are we going to do? Should I cut the jacket off in the back so it won't hang? You know, those little things like that that come up constantly for me that I'm dealing with, um, I think his are a much more of a greater magnitude. For me, it's just a day-to-day living and reinventing ourselves every day. How do, how do we make our kitchen? We built a kitchen, but it ended up not being as handicapped accessible as we thought it was. So we had to replan an area in the kitchen with a low table where he could do prep work because he likes to cook. So little things like that that we've had to adjust. Um, from your standpoint, I'm sure that you have things that are much more problematic than mine. Setbacks occur all the time, and it really depends upon how you handle it. Because, you know, for me, it could be simply not being able to do something, you know, around the house. Uh, little things. It's not It's not of the big magnitude of what uh, Lynn is talking about. Um, as far as access to travel and things like that. I actually went to a restaurant one time that I had to be carried up the stairs. It was a restaurant. It was an evening that was planned by our real estate agent. Little things like that that are sometimes feel demeaning or sometimes feel incredibly frustrating and and makes you, get you to the point where you just want to start crying because this is the life that you face. Um, so it's little things that happen on a daily basis, the day-to-day challenges of learning how to be someone who is in a wheelchair can sometimes be pretty substantial. How have you learned, even if not perfectly, cause I'm, I'm sure we all have our moments, right? But how have you learned to cope with those frustrations in those moments? He swears initially. <laughs> usually, usually what I'll do is I'll just, I'll have a little temper tantrum sometimes. It lasts about a minute or two. And then I will, it, this I learned a while ago, the happiness class that we took and something that I'd written a while ago is just you stop, calm your breathing, think about everything that you have in life that you're glad for. And that one little thing that just really frustrated the heck out of you seems to pale in comparison. So I'll have my little temper tantrum. And Lynn learned a long time ago that that when I have my little temper tantrum, she doesn't need to fix it. She just lets me deal with it because five minutes later, I've done some deep breathing. I've gotten into a Zen moment and now I'm better. And I can look at positive ways of dealing with that issue. I love what you said. It's uh, it kind of takes both sides of the coin, right? That you're allowed to be frustrated and grieve the fact that this is really significantly impacting your life, but you've also learned how to move your thoughts away from that into a forward direction um, when you want to. Yes, and that that actually gets back to one of the first things, one of the first decisions I made when it came to from advancing, kind of from walker to wheelchair was that I really needed to focus my life on what's important. We deal with a lot of things on a day-to-day basis that are just superfluous. They're really not that important. If you look at, and and I think as far as relationships go, if you look at what's really important in life and really kind of focus your energy on that zone of control that you have around what's really important in your life, then... You, you can actually improve your life. I think uh, finding resources is a big problem for a lot of people. So you said um, finding the right equipment has been a struggle for you guys. Um, where have you started? Mm-hmm. Where have you both looked for those kinds of 
uh, resources or those that type of equipment? Well, sometimes it's online, just doing searches until you find what it is you're looking for. Other times it's suggestions from groups like Can Do or Mark and his, his men's group. Everybody has different things. Oh, you'll get a kick out of this. One day he comes home and he says, guess what? Tad, Thad has a pole that he pulls himself up on and it hooks up into the ceiling and it just screws on real tight. And I think that I should get one of those poles and we could put it right here in the living room next to my chair. And I looked at him and I said, in the living room, I'm not putting a pole in my living room. The next thing you'll want is a pole dancer. I said, no, I'm not putting a pole in the living room. But if you want to put one next to the bed, you could get a pole in the bedroom. <laughs> or you'll see somebody out in something. And you'll go up and ask him, where did you get that? Do you like it? Does it work? And like he has a new wheelchair called a Will. And it's a four-wheel drive wheelchair so he can get out on the trails more. And people all the time come up to him and say, oh, that wheelchair is so cool. Where did you get that? Because it looks really ultra modern. So I think a variety of sources that we find what we need. So far, we're doing pretty well. So um, you've talked about planning on the small scale. So on a daily basis, like going out to restaurants and things like that, you've talked about planning um, for the long term. Has this kind of planning helped you decrease any worries or anxieties? I say some. The biggest fear for me is Mark being so incapacitated that he can't feed himself or have any control over bladder or bowel. Those are my biggest fears. I relatively have my freedom now as much as I want. And although he depends on me, he can manage still. But I do, I have in the back of my mind, I try not to worry about it on a daily basis because there's nothing I can do about it. But that's my long-term fears are how do I manage when he cannot no longer do those things? And we've talked about many, many options, you know, many options. And we still, you know, just try to focus on a day-to-day -day basis because really all we have is the moment. Like I say to him, I could have a stroke tomorrow and you're going to be by yourself. So who knows? We don't know what the future has. We only have today and we only have the second. So try not to dwell on it too much. But yeah, in the background, there are financial things that you worry about. There are care issues. I don't want to be um, his caretaker full-time. That's not my goal. I don't want to give him my life. I'm much too independent as he is the same. He doesn't want to give me his life either. So those are my fears. What about yours, Mark? One of the biggest issues about any sort of progressive neurologic disorder, obviously, is what I've mentioned earlier, is that you don't know entirely what the future looks like. So that's a little bit cloudy, and that's fearful for me. But one thing I decided is that the fear of of, you know, of doing anything in life is much greater than the disease itself. And, 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 and I go back to FDR who once said, uh, the only thing to fear is fear itself. And in reality, the fear about changes, the fear about um, barriers, the fear of uh, what's going to happen next it can be and or sometimes is more debilitating than the disease itself. So to overcome that fear, you can't just be naive about it. You have to face it front on and do your planning on a regular basis for how I'm going to live my life. I do think about how I'm going to live my life and I do want it to be a good quality of life. Uh, so I work on it all the time. 
So it sounds like you all do kind of three things. You take things day by day, you check the fear and that uncertainty that comes up from thinking about the future, but then you also don't put your heads in the sand either. You have um, conversations about what you might do next if and when something like that is comes to pass. Um, but again, don't focus all your attention there. Has having these conversations helped to strengthen your relationship at all? Oh, yeah, definitely. I think that we probably over the years in the course of this disease have gotten closer than we were even before because there are so many things that we have to talk about and deal with on a day-to-day basis. Overall, we do pretty well. And I would say that we have a very um, committed relationship to help each other in any way that we can. I mean, he does so many things for me. It's not all just one-sided. I get a cup of tea served to me in bed every morning. He brings me the New York Times in bed on Sundays. You know, he'll do dishes when I'm not here. And it's very difficult for him because our sink is not cut out. He has to sit sideways to do everything. So there are so many, many things that he does for me. It's definitely double-edged love and concern for one another. And the closeness, I think, has just gotten better over the years. I would agree with that. I think that uh, Lynn and I had this conversation a couple of years ago. We actually we, we talked about this. And... We were thinking at that time and, and still exists today that our relationship has actually improved, right? gotten stronger, which is contrary to, to a lot of things that you read about, uh, about, about relationships with progressive neurologic disorders um, is that they can deteriorate, fall apart. And when people look at the future, uh, they see dark and misery and just leave skid marks in the opposite direction. <laughs> um, that's, that hasn't happened here. We uh, feed off of it. We, uh, and, and maybe it gets back to that competitive nature uh, that we have. It's like, no, this is not going to beat me. Right. I can figure out a better way to do this. Well, the other thing too, I, I, I think, is that we've talked about this too. Some partners, and I think women are natural caretakers and women want to take care of family and men. A lot of men run because you can't deal with the disease. A lot of women literally give their life up for their partner. I'm not one of those women. And I think in order to have a quality life, you still have to have your independence. You still have to take care of yourself. And I'm really good at that. I don't neglect Mark, but at the same time, I take really good care of myself. I have my own life in terms of my commitments and my volunteer work that I do, my friendships. I have a whole circle of women friends that I do things with. Of course, Mark is sometimes part of that circle because they'll all come over here and hang out, and he's right there. Um, but I think that it's really important for caretakers and partners of people with chronic illness to have their own life and not think and not feel guilty that they're not there every minute of the day to take care of their loved one. You don't have to be. And at the point where you do get to that point, because there are people that just don't have the financial resources and they feel like they have to be there 24 seven, you still have friends. There's still respite groups. There's hospice groups. There's all kinds of groups that come in and give relief to caretakers. And I would encourage any listeners to do that. You know, you need to have your own life and you need to develop your own interests. It's just not all about the person who's stricken with a disease. You both have done a really good job of maintaining your own identities, uh, maintaining your identity as a as a couple, not as a caregiver, caretaker, and not letting this um, overtake those identities in, in either circumstance. Absolutely. Yes. That's as a matter of fact, with this trip to Japan that Lynn just took, 
I, you know, it's, it's amazing. I get a lot of pleasure out of knowing that I can take care of myself and that Lynn can be herself as well. Lynn gives a lot to me and what she does on a day-to-day basis. I can give that back. Any final thoughts that either of you have for people who are, are starting off um, planning for the future? My advice would be to remember the person that you're with, why you were with them in the first place, why you married them or live with them. Remember all the good qualities about that person that attracted to you to them in the first place. That person is still there. It's the same person. And yes, they have to develop their interests and their life in a different way. But the inner core of who they are and their soul is still there. And don't lose track of that. Because if you just think about the disease portion of it, you could lose that person. And for me, Mark, the essence of Mark is still Mark, no matter what. And that keeps us connected. And you deal with each issue that comes up. It wouldn't be any different than somebody losing a job and being depressed because they lost their job. It wouldn't be any depre- any different than someone falling down and breaking their leg and having to hobble around in a, in a cast and a crutch. They're limited, but they're the same person. And so that would be my conclusion to couples who are starting to go through this. Reach out. Reach out for resources. Use the MS Society. Use Can Do form a group of caretaker support or MS support group people for your loved one. Um, Continue living your life and don't give up hope because hope springs eternal and the things that are occurring today in the MS world. So just hang in there and work with each other until you get to that point. You know, for me, I think it really gets down to what you think about your life. I have I actually decided early on in this disease that I was not going to let the the disease control my life, and it does to a certain extent because it my disease mandates that I be in a wheelchair, but it doesn't mandate that I have a negative attitude it doesn't mandate that I don't want to live anymore it doesn't mandate that I can't do things because I can do these things. Um, and I that it, it does make a difference. So attitude is everything. It really depends upon how you approach life. And I mirror everything that Lynn said. She said it beautifully. Well, thank you so much, Lynn and Mark, for telling us about uh, your story and about each other. And um, it was great to speak to you today. Thank, thank you, you, Megan. This was very nice. And I'm glad you included us. Thank you for inviting us. Thank you to Mark, Lynn, and Megan for joining us. And Mark and Lynn, we really appreciate you sharing your personal experiences of how MS has helped strengthen your relationship while still maintaining your own identities. This podcast is part of the Embracing Carer series, an initiative led by EMD Serono in collaboration with leading caregiver organizations around the world to increase awareness and action about the often overlooked needs of caregivers. Be sure to check out our Embracing Carers page on our website, cando-ms.org ec. The Can Do MS podcast will return again with new episodes in 2019. We'll kick off the year with a three-part series on relapses, which will be available on our website and Apple Podcasts on January 22nd. Thank you for joining us.